<laughs> Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Sen Mums Career Club, a podcast exploring the highs and lows of trying to climb the career ladder whilst raising children with complex or additional needs. My name is Lisa Miller. I'm a journalist with three children. My eldest daughter Beatrix has a condition called Kabuki syndrome. She's under various medical and therapeutic specialists and attends a Sen school. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest to discuss work and ambition through the lens of special needs parenting. Today, I'd like to introduce Charlie Beswick, a qualified teacher who now works as a trainer, mentor, and speaker. She's also written a book, Our Altered Life, about her unexpected experience of motherhood. She has 18-year-old twin boys, Oliver and Harry. Harry was born with a rare craniofacial condition called Golden Heart Syndrome, and he's autistic with significant learning and communication needs. She also has two stepchildren. Welcome, Charlie. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm going to try and not be too much of a fangirl today, but your sharing of your experience of motherhood has helped me a lot personally. So before we even start, I want to say thank you for that. Um, and I'm really excited to dive into this with you today. Thank you. Me too. Tell me, what were you doing for work before you fell pregnant? And what did you expect your career roadmap to look like when you were young? So I was already working in education and had decided I was going to train to be a qualified teacher when I fell pregnant. And then I found out I was having twins. So obviously I knew that life was going to be a little bit more challenging than I expected with just one baby. But for me, I've always been very focused, very determined, very ambitious. And so it was definitely going to be a career. Teaching for me was a career path where I could make a difference initially to children and then move to maybe a headship um, so that I could contribute to the wider school community, including staff and parents. So that was always the plan for me. Fantastic. And then your boys arrived. And it quickly became clear that while Oliver was healthy, there were a number of serious health issues for Harry. What does Golden Heart Syndrome mean for him? So for Harry, um, it meant that he was born with no eye, no eye socket, no ear, no nostril, a short, underdeveloped jaw. We were told when he was only a matter of hours old that he would probably never walk and would be brain damaged more than likely. So... You know, initially a, a huge shock. The scans had never picked up anything, you know, different with Harry. In fact, quite the opposite. I was reassured all through the pregnancy that everything was going to be fine. So he, he's got that aspect, which then obviously leads on to hearing and vision impairment. And then he was diagnosed when he was three and a half as autistic. And he has significant challenges with communication, with learning, um, so yeah, he's a, he's a complex character is my Harry. And I understand what, what a big shock that was for you. And having read your book, it was a lot to, to process at the time, you know, work aside, obviously you had that kind of maternity leave, um, space, breathing space, I guess. And then the boys went into nursery and you, you went back to work, didn't I you? I did. Um, after, after that year. And I remember there's a passage in your book which really stuck out to me, where you say, I desperately wanted to be a good mum to my boys, but I also wanted to be successful as a person. And I think that really resonated, that idea that 
good mum and successful as a person in your own right, you know, are two really different and equally important things. How do you feel about that time now, looking back? Um, it, it was such a challenging time. When the boys were born, everybody was saying to me, you are so focused, so determined, so positive, so passionate. If anybody can do this, it's you. And that was gorgeous to to have that support around me. But what it did was it created a bar that I felt I had to live up to. And I couldn't really admit that I was struggling um, as a mum uh, or that I was finding it overwhelming or dark or doubting myself, questioning whether I could be the right person to raise these boys. And so for me, my work almost, my life was com compartmentalised and I felt, well, I've already failed as a mum. I've, I've failed there, but what I can do is be really good at my job. Um, and so I threw myself into both, but I knew I could be good as a teacher. It's all I'd ever wanted to do. I was already having really good success um, and really enjoying the role. And I knew I could do well there. Whereas having a disabled baby, I felt that I'd already failed. And so I was starting on the back foot almost. It is really difficult, isn't it? That sense of, of failure. I I felt exactly the same way. Um, B was my first baby, Beatrix, and she, it just wasn't my experience, you know, my experience of motherhood was not what I was led to expect at all. And she had, she just seemed to have everything wrong with her. And I was like, none of the other babies have that, you know, what, what have I done? And it's very difficult to talk about that. It's, it's very difficult to to admit it out loud, isn't it? That that guilt, like, what have I done? And I kind of drove myself mad for a long time, wondering, you know, was it this, was it that? I had, before I had Beatrix, I had had um, two miscarriages, two early miscarriages. And she was so wanted, so desperately wanted. You know, I'd given up drinking before we tried to conceive. I'd taken every vitamin. I'd done I'd done it by the book, you know. I'd applied my, my work mentality to this having a baby. You know, I was gonna do the best pregnancy. I was gonna just absolutely smash it, you know. And then and then B came along and I felt a bit cheated. I felt like what are people going to think I've done wrong? What have I done wrong? I wondered what I'd done wrong. I'm like, because I think I've done everything right. But was it that time I went on holiday? You know, we, I went abroad when I was pregnant. Like, should I have not done that? Did I eat something? Was it something in the water? You know, you could drive yourself absolutely mad. Um, and I really recognize that feeling of I have failed at that. I have not, I have not produced a healthy baby and and also that sense of but you need to, but everybody thinks that you're gonna be able to cope with this yeah. <laughs> you know because you are that person because you are that capable person and you find that actually you have to be strong for everybody else yeah in that scenario absolutely that's certainly what I found and now when I talk about my experience either to other mums or within organisations, I call that the lie we wear, that smile that we paint on, that is that mask of, of course I'm okay, yeah, sure, I'm getting on with it, oh, thanks for the, the compliment that I'm a strong mum, when actually inside I was just crumbling. Um, and I think, you know, guilt is absolutely, it was one of the main 
initial feelings that consumed me um, and grief. So I, I grieved and I, I've been called out on this a couple of times, but I still maintain that we grieve for the life we're never going to know as parents. We grieve for the life our children may never experience, for the life our siblings may never enjoy together. Oliver only said yesterday, I love Harry Mum, but I'm like an only child in the worst sense, like the worst of both worlds. I haven't got a friend, Gosh. but I've had to share myself with you, uh, with, you know, sort of share you with Harry all the time. And yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of grief and there was anger. And I think you've touched on that a little bit with, you know, the, the healthy babies. I was furious. I remember two moments when, one, I was leaving the maternity unit and saw a young no offence to young mums, but she was a young pregnant lady, stood outside the maternity unit, chain smoking cigarettes. And I I was just raging inside. And I'm thinking, I did everything. I looked after myself, much like mm. you. I, I really took mm. care of myself. Why can't she have the disabled baby and not me? Why have I got to learn to love a child that I didn't expect? Why can't it be her reality? Um, and at that time, I, I didn't know Harry. You know, he was just this little person that had arrived in my world. And I wouldn't think that about him now in, in the slightest. But I was, you know, it consumed me for such a long time. And I remember walking to a store that used to be around called Mother Care and seeing a, a, a couple with twins and literally standing rooted on the car park. I, I physically couldn't walk forwards. And I just stood watching them with almost like through a window, just so envious and thinking that's what I wanted. That's what I ordered. That's what I deserved. You know, I'm a good person. I, I didn't deserve this. And, and, I, and those feelings certainly didn't serve me. They absolutely didn't. And I think they came massively in the way of my bonding with the both boys. But it's something I had to experience and not sharing it and not voicing it made it lasts longer, made it harder, made it worse, which is why I support mums now. And I will say there's nothing that you can say that I haven't felt at some time. And there's zero judgment here. And that's what I needed. So I tried to be the person that I needed right back then. Because as you say, we don't talk about this. There's such a lot of shame around the feeling of mm. what if I can't love this baby? What if I'm not the right mom? Absolutely. And how did you, how did you get through that? How did you process that? I hid behind that lie that we wear for quite a while. My marriage broke down. I was a single parent. And then when the boys were almost six, I was diagnosed with depression uh, and was put on medication. I sought out some therapy, some talking therapy, some holistic therapy. Um, I had sort of Reiki, Vortex, all of these things to work on my energy levels and I began to talk it through and it was a little bit like opening Pandora's box at first, but it was the, it was the best thing for me. Um, it was hard, but ultimately it's how I was able to move forwards. I think therapy, I'm a huge evangelist for therapy. I had um, therapy in my twenties to deal with some childhood trauma. And, you know, I think that probably coincidentally stood me in quite good stead for when I had B because I found it easy for me to recognize when I needed yeah. help um, or able to admit that I needed help I should probably say and I, I probably should have done it sooner but I remember really clearly taking her to um, the playground such a 
you know, a difficult environment, but we do, she was an only child. I didn't even have any other children to entertain. And I look back and I think, why did I put myself through that? She couldn't do anything, bless her. She wasn't, she wasn't really mobile, even though she was about one, you know, but, um, we did it. We took her to the playground. She used to like to go on the swing and, um, she was just kind of, she must've been a bit older than that. She must've been about two and a half. Cause she, I remember she was starting to clamber on things and that she started um, walking when she was about two and a half. And I remember her, you know, being super slow, like testing out this um, climbing frame with a slide on it. And there were two boys who were a little bit older, not, not old, you know, maybe like four or something um, playing on it already. And one of them looked at me and said, why is your baby's face so weird? Mm. And that was it. That was the moment because up until that point, I'd looked at B and thought, can you tell? Okay. Can you tell? Does it look like there's something wrong with her? I don't know. Does it? You know, she has Kabuki syndrome. So there are dysmorphic facial features are a part of that. And her eyes have quite a distinctive shape. Her ears are slightly malformed. And she she's my baby she's gorgeous you know I'm looking at her and I'm like I don't know can other people tell she just looks like a baby to me but maybe yeah. and you know sometimes and she had her tongue out a lot she was very dribbly for a very long time you know in retrospect yes you probably could tell but that moment that was such a difficult moment and I sort of I remember I said to him um but look at her. She's so smiley. There's nothing wrong with her face. She's beautiful. And I grabbed her, um, put her in the buggy and walked away so nobody could see me just burst into tears. Um, and that was it. That was the moment I was like, I need some help. So I started Googling and I actually found Scope, um, the charity yes. Scope and their course. Um, they do a six week uh, counseling course for parents who have a recent diagnosis for their child. And, you know, because I was searching specifically for for counselling around disability. Um, and that was an absolute godsend to me at that time. Um, and I went through that and just coming out of that, it was, you know, uh, six weeks. I think it was an hour long session. And I came out of that so much stronger than I went into it. Um, I never felt that I couldn't cope, but I just felt like I know I need something else here. Um coming out of that we also went on to have an amazing um session of of therapy through great ormond street hospital the waiting list was very long we we made it to the to the front and had counseling sessions with an absolutely incredible um counselor there and both of those things i think just really set us up for the future and i do wonder had we not had access to that had we not known to do that had i not you know had I been fearful of services, had I been fearful of reaching out for help, you know, I do kind of dread to to wonder what our reality might look like now. And I think with therapy, we we don't need to access it all of the time. And when we do need to access it, where do you even begin looking sometimes? My, my friends didn't, couldn't help me or support me because they'd not got disabled babies themselves. They didn't know what I was going through. Um, and I didn't know where to turn. And I was worried about people judging me. I didn't want to say to the health visitor, can you please recommend somebody that can make me feel less of a failure or more, you know, a better mum? Because I didn't want her judging me. So there's such a lot of stigma around accessing therapy. But it's, you know, one of the best things that I did. And medication for me helped massively. It doesn't help for everybody. 
um, and I was medicated for about two and a half years um, on antidepressants. And then probably about eight years ago, I started having panic attacks and I'm still medicated for anxiety now. So not so much depression um, because I feel much better, but I can feel really overwhelmed and anxious because we spin such a lot of plates. I laugh because we, we say that I spin like a badass and smash them like a Greek because I'm just forever, you know, picking up a new plate to spin, a new interest, a new passion. But it's really hard to keep that going. Absolutely. Work is one of those plates for you and, you know, always has been throughout throughout the journey that, you know, we're talking about. So in those early years when you were doing your teacher training and the boys were young, what parts of Harry's care were, did you find the most challenging in terms of that, that juggle? So for me, I think the operations, because in the first four or five years, Harry had the majority of his big significant operations. He was 18 months old when he had his skull taken apart completely. And that required quite a long stay in hospital, which we always tried to coordinate around the six week holidays so that it didn't impact my, my job as best it could. And then I guess more day to day, it was just the lack of sleep because of his autism. It was sleep deprivation is so much more than being tired. It's like a fog that clings to you and just makes everyday decisions so much harder. Everyday actions feel so much slower somehow. And, and we were severely sleep deprived. When Harry first came home, we had to check on him every 20 minutes because of his airway. And so me and my husband would take it in turns then to check on him. We'd have sort of three hours sort of stints of sleep and tag team. And then when I was, when the boys were a little bit older and it became more apparent that he, he was autistic, he would only sleep for three hours a night. And I would be either teacher training or then full on teaching and having to give everything as I always do. I'm a big believer in if you're going to do a job, do it right. I taught in a primary school in a very, very, deprived area where children didn't have positive role models so I really wanted to give everything to my class and it was a real balance between having the energy to do that and I was like a performing seal at school when I was a teacher and then I'd come home and have nothing left for my own children because I'd had no sleep so I think day to day that the, the lack of sleep was just enormous um, and I guess on the bigger scale yeah the operations were really challenging. Mm. What was the crunch point when you realised that you might need to make a change in terms of the work-life balance? So it, it was actually made for me because when the boys were 11, their after-school club said that they couldn't take them anymore. Harry was... Both of my boys started puberty really early. So Oliver was nine and Harry was 10, 11. And at that point, he was, you know, hands down his pants like boys do and things like this. And he was just getting a little bit, shall we say, confident. And it it wasn't appropriate with the younger kids around him. And so there was not so much safeguarding concerns because Harry doesn't have the capacity to manipulate children or to, you know, take advantage of anybody. But he certainly could flash. You know, that's, it, it, you know, I kind of hold my hands up and say, yeah, you know, th there's a risk there. And... <laughs> So his after and before school care provision stopped and I, I then really, really struggled because I was at school for half past eight and I left school at five. But Harry's transport that took him to the special school that he was at didn't collect him until 20 past eight. 
and dropped him off at four. So it, it was really one of those things that was forced upon me that I, I just physically couldn't teach anymore. And so I left teaching in 2014. Um, and then I did go back into it in 2017, but that was only because I knew the CEO of a local high school and he said, will you come in and do some lessons for me? And I said, no chance. They're all taller than me. I'm five foot two. I was like, no way. All the kids are going to be taller than me. I can't teach high school. And he said, no, these are nurture children. So they're year seven and eight, but they're functioning around year five and six, which I, I could quite comfortably teach. So I said, well, I, you know, I, these are my conditions. I can't have a form. I can't be there for nine o'clock. And so credit to them. They worked around me. And I think knowing my value and being really clear on my boundaries really helped in that situation. And I'm actually going into my seventh year at that school now. So it, it was only meant to be six weeks, longest six weeks of my life. <laughs> but they they helped me make it work. And I, and I said from the off, you know, if you can work with me, I will give you everything I've got. You, you'll get the very best out of me, but I'm not your typical teacher. My situation is not the typical working mum situation. And I just had to be really blunt uh, and and know that they might just say, well, we can't work with you then. But that honesty and that, you know, knowing my value really did stand me in good stead. That's absolutely fantastic to hear that. You know, I think one of the the difficult things about inhabiting this this world of, of special needs parenting and navigating it alongside work, I have a very understanding employer and it's that thought of all of the women who don't find that, um, you know, and who aren't in a position maybe to set up on their own or whatever their situation is, but they want to work and they could work if there were just some reasonable adjustments around them, you know, and it's a lose-lose because it's a lose for the families and also it's a lose for the employers of these women who are, you know, more often than not will have years and years of experience, will have done years and years of qualifications and because the system is broken, you know, because the system is broken for all women, really, and doubly so for women who are trying to raise children with disabilities. It's just such a waste. It's unbelievable. Completely. A lot of the work I do with organisations is around highlighting the value that parent carers bring to the workplace and not just from the very obvious skills, but from the transferable skills of being a carer. So that tenacity, that ability to be able to read between the lines and, and really sort of hone in on body language and knowing what isn't being said, communication, that being agile, being able to think on the spot, being able to pivot quickly, problem solving. There's a massive list of qualities that we bring to the workplace because we are carers, not in spite of that fact. And you are right, I think employers are losing out massively on a huge pool of talent when they simply say, no, we can't work with you. And, and I find it ridiculous and very frustrating in this day and age, particularly post-COVID, when so many organisations thrive from people working from home. I find it really frustrating that mums are still having to justify or beg sometimes or, you know, have to convince employers that they're good at their job and they, they need an hour here or an hour there. In my experience, the employers that understand that get the best out of you naturally. 
A hundred percent. You know, I feel like something that comes up a lot in these conversations is the idea of gratitude. Um, I feel very grateful to be able to work. And I think it's something that people don't necessarily understand outside of this world when I talk about how how grateful I am to, to work and to have my job. I love my job. Um, but it's, it's a different kind of gratitude because I know how close I am to not being able to work. You know, it's just... And I think for me, I might just be speaking for myself here, but at many times work was my respite. Work was my break. Work was my time to go and chat with Valerie at the photocopier and listen about her holiday and her cruise and, and switch off and just be Charlie and not have to be Harry's mum for a little while. And that, I think, is so powerful and... It means so much to mums like us that I, I think employers are just missing the fact that we do value and we are grateful to have that opportunity to be more than a mum in those moments. And that's not to say not being a mum, you know, that being a mum isn't amazing. Like my boys are my absolute world, but I, I've always needed something else. I've always needed something alongside that. And I don't think that makes me a bad mum. I just think it makes me human. And yeah, I think the best the bosses that I've worked the best for have really got that, have really understood that. Let's take a short break. Before we go into part two of the show, I'd like to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Baby on the Brain. Join Stylist Magazine's Felicity Thistlethwaite as she takes a mainstream look at the big parenting issues, from finding your identity after children to combating sleep deprivation. It's an informative listen packed with expert views, lively debate and laugh out loud moments. Discover Baby on the Brain from Stylist Magazine, wherever you get your podcasts. Your experience of motherhood is doubly unique because as well as Harry having a rare condition and all the additional care he required, he was also a twin. What was your experience of parenting Oliver and your stepchildren while balancing work and Harry's care needs when they were younger? Yeah, I think one of the saddest, I don't believe in regrets, but I think one of the saddest things when I look back is that I completely overlooked the fact that I got a perfectly healthy baby because the impact of Harry's diagnosis was so enormous on me. And then as the boys got older, I almost expected Olive to be the big brother and almost forgot sometimes that he was his twin. Oliver had incredibly difficult separation anxiety. And so that paired with a child that's a flight risk and will run off. If I was crazy, I'm not going to use the word brave. I'm going to say crazy enough to go to soft play with, with some friends and their children. Harry would be legging it off somewhere to try and get out onto the car park or pressing the emergency exit. If Oliver turned around and I wasn't in my seat, he'd be hysterical and wanting to know where I was. And then I'd lose my temper with Oliver. And, and I'm, I'm definitely not proud at all to say that. But I think looking back, it was really difficult to appreciate that Oliver was still a baby or a toddler. And and I was really I think I I put both of my expectations on one little set of shoulders for both boys. If I'm honest, the boys were six when we met my husband, my current husband, my stepchildren. And that was lovely because he almost has in them the siblings that he doesn't have in Harry. 
So I have a stepson and a stepdaughter. And even in the school holidays, I would take all four of them out and people would say, you are crazy. And I'd say, you know, do you know what? It's so much easier because Oliver plays with Harrison, who's his stepbrother, and B, who's Benedict to my stepdaughter, and B was such a little mother hen around Harry that she kind of helped me with Harry anyway. So having them I will will always be, you know, one of the best moments of my life because they added to the family and made my life a lot easier, if I'm honest, because Oliver had all, all of a sudden got somebody other than me. So it took the pressure off. It gave him a sibling relationship and it meant that I could parent with less guilt. Not that that ever goes away. Parent guilt is, you know, there for all of us all of the time, but it was better. Mm, yeah. I think reading your book really helped me to realise something that I hadn't quite consciously realised before because yeah. I've got three children and Beatrix is the eldest. Um, and I was five months pregnant with her sister uh, when we got her diagnosis. So we didn't know what was going to happen there, but, you know, we were assured it was quite rare, etc. And, you know, and my daughter came out, she was healthy, um, has no issues. And we've since gone on to have a little baby as well, a son, he's about to turn one. Um, so I've got, I've got a six, a four and a one, just about. And um, I always kind of think of it like I'm raising a child with a lot of additional needs and two other children sort of in another bracket. And what your book really helped me to realize was that's not the case. I'm raising three children who are all in the same circumstance. You know, what, what happens with beat affects everybody, affects all the kids. Um, and there's a passage in your book where you say, where you're having a, a really difficult um, moment with Oliver and he says, you know, you're always saying that Harry is special. Why do you never say that I'm special? And that just, that the tears actually sprung to my eyes because I could hear that. I could hear that in her voice, in Felicity's voice. Um, she, you know, she's never said it, but she, if she could express that, I think she really would. And I find it difficult because B's got so many additional needs, but then Flissy, she's so independent and sassy and all the things that a four-year-old is, but she sees me doing so much for her sister. And in her four-year-old mind, that means that I love her sister more. She's getting more attention, you know, so she doesn't do the things that she can do. Toileting is huge in my house. I spend most of my spare time in the bathroom with a child on the toilet because B can't go up the stairs by herself and she needs a bit of help. Um, Flissy can, but she insists she's too scared to do it on her own and she needs me to do it. So I am inevitably just taking one or the other of them up and down the stairs and helping mm -hmm. them on and off the loo. I must spend an hour of my day doing it solidly in, you know, in, in tiny five minute moments. Um, you know, thankfully the baby's still in nappies, but goodness knows when he's in the mix as well, I might actually go mad. But it's little things like that. It's little things like that. Like I have to hold B's hand down the stairs. I have to carry the baby down the stairs. And then I don't have another hand to hold Lissy's hand and she can do it. So I just have to say, can you go yourself, babe? Otherwise I'll have to come up and get you. And then everything take twice as long, you know, and it's just so difficult. It's just so difficult for her. And she just doesn't understand it. And I am not, she doesn't have the experience of a, you know, quote unquote, normal child, um, as, as I think she does, you know, because she's the one who doesn't have any issues and, and B has the unusual childhood, but she has a childhood that is impacted by disability as well. Completely. I always say that the siblings are the unsung heroes 
of our stories. And when I published the book, a couple of Oliver's teachers bought the book and read it and spoke to me afterwards and said, we never considered the impact on Oliver. We never really fully, you know, appreciated just how hard it is for him. And I remember him coming home from middle school one day and he was really low and I said what's the matter and he said oh some of the boys were talking at school about how they hate their brothers how they fall out with their brothers all the time and they don't know how lucky they are mommy because I'd love a brother to fall out with and it's just little things like that um I remember another time when I'd, re I'd just split up from his dad I was living on my own and he said I might throw myself down these stairs mommy and, and maybe I can break my arm and I said why on earth would you want to do that and he said well I could spend time with you like Harry does there and it's it, that, isn't it, that they see us giving, they equate time to love. Mm. And it's really difficult to explain it when they're four or five. Uh, and I, and I, yeah, you know, you were right, I did say, but Harry's special. And of course, I meant different, disabled. He's got a facial mm. difference. He's autistic. And I couldn't say any of those things to his four-year-old twin because he wouldn't have understood. But what I did say at the end of that conversation and I'm sure you would have read it if you read the book, is that it was around the same time that Oliver was questioning God. We're not a particularly religious family. We're quite spiritual, but we're not religious. But Oliver was doing Ari a lot, and he was questioning, why would God send Harry to us, mummy? Why couldn't he send Harry to somebody else's family? And um, and I was like, well, he, you know, he sent God to us. And, and it was all in this conversation. And I said, do you know what, Oliver? God sent Harry to me because he thought I would be a good mum to look after him and you'd be a good brother. And God sent you to me so that on the days when I feel that I'm not a very good mum, I can look at you and see what a brilliant boy you are and know I was doing a good job because you were amazing. And I used to say to him, you are the greatest thing I ever did. And even now, yesterday he was upstairs and I text him as you do from downstairs when they're 18. And I just randomly will say to him, what are you? And even now he'll reply, the greatest thing you ever did. And I'm like, damn right you are. And that kind of has become over the last more than a decade, the little mantra between us both to remind him that he is valued and he is important and he is special because, yeah, I, I allowed him to feel otherwise for a while. And that was, I, I, I don't blame myself for that. I think I did the very best that I could in the situation I was in at that time. Sometimes that's all we can do. And we just have to show ourselves the same compassion that we would to somebody else. It's a nice thought. Um, it's so inspirational, you know, knowing how, how difficult things have been for you and how dark they got at one time. You know, you now train and speak on disability inclusion, run your mentoring program, send gin and cheese yep. for other parent carers. Um, tell me about your work life now. So it's hectic, to say the least. So I teach two days a week currently, although I'm going into my final academic year. And then I will focus full time on my own bit, my external businesses. So I have a charity called More Than A Face and I go into schools with my teacher hat on and educate the next generation on, vis on visible differences, really, so that they aren't saying things like, why does your baby's face look so weird? Or in our case, did you know your baby looks like a Halloween monster? You know, we've had those sort of comments as well. So that's one sort of thing that I do. And then Send Gin and Cheese is predominantly online so we have a free community with over 2,000 mums but then I have a membership and I work through what I call three pathways with those mums 
and we get sort of, you know, guest speakers in and we talk about really mastering those emotions like guilt, grief, jealousy, the triggers of your best friend having a baby when you're really happy for them, but at the same time, you're so, so sad. Um, and then we've got advocacy and we've got taking care of ourselves, time for self and others as well. So that's very much online, in the online space. So when I'm not arranging get-togethers for those different communities, that can be fitting around the needs of my family, which was always the idea was that I could support other people, but do it flexibly around my family's needs. So, you know, it, it's busy. I'm, sp I'm spinning lots of plates again, but I enjoy it. I, I like being busy. I'm, I'm one of these people that struggles to switch off. I really enjoy being busy. I love working. I love making a difference and contributing. And I think that's one of the, the points when people have had a career and they've had to give that career up. One of the advice I give is find the reason why you did it. For me, it was making a difference and try and do that in a different way so that you'll, the job might change, but it's still fulfilling that same value. Um, and so I feel that I'm doing that in a variety of different ways now. Um, and hopefully from August 2024, I'll be able to do that a little bit more streamlined once the teaching drops off. Um, and I'll be sad to let teaching go. I really will. It will have been 17 years of my life and it's been incredible, but I'm ready to devote myself now to the, to the mums that need me and the mum I was. Mm. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I wish I had had access to, to the resources, you know, that you have, or I wish I'd known about them uh, when I needed them. Um, if anyone's listening to this and they think, that is what I need. Um, where can people go to find out more about the kind of services you offer, Charlie? So sendginandcheese.org is the website. And yeah, if you click on the support tab, that will explain what's available there, both free and paid. And then if you have any organisations listening, that's probably better on the charliebeswick.com website. Um, and there's a list there of what I do with organisations as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Has your ambition changed over the years? Um, I, I think back to that earlier point, you know, your earlier aim of wanting to be successful as a person. Do you, do you think you've achieved that? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I do. I think I do. I think I'm on the way. And my husband would disagree because he says that I'm a workaholic and I don't ever give myself the pat on the back that I deserve. But I think I feel successful in that I didn't crumble when I knew I could and that I've tried to help other people in a situation that might have finished me off in some ways. Um, you know, I had some really dark moments and very, very well thought through exit plans because when I do a job, I do it right. And so I've been very close to, to the edge and so I think sometimes just living is a success and and sometimes we equate success with earning a high wage or having the respect of other people or, you know, sort of having qualifications and all of those things are lovely. But can I get up every day and know that my boys know they're loved and that I'm doing the very best for them and that I'm making a difference, which is my core value in some way, in some capacity? And yes, I can say yes to all of those so I feel, yes, I feel that I'm making a success, 
I don't know that anybody ever sits back and says, I'm done. I don't think Richard Branson ever sits back and goes, <laughs> ah, do you know what? I'm successful now. Let's leave it. Um, I think it's it's a journey for sure, but it's one I'm enjoying being on. And it's one that I just do try and stop every now and again along the way and just take stock of how far I have come, because I think it's really important. We don't do that as women. We certainly don't do it as mums. And crikey, we don't have the time to do it as mums of children with disabilities because we're far too busy putting everybody else, uh, you know, as a priority above us. And I think it's massively important that we just stop sometimes and say, do you know what? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm trying my best and that's enough. I could not agree more. I was thinking about achievement yesterday, actually, because B came home from school with a certificate and uh, she's six and she came home from school with this certificate um, for counting up to seven objects so she can rattle off like up to 20 but she doesn't know what it means you ask her to count something and she just rattles off one to 20 but she counted seven Yay. objects properly now this is a huge achievement for her and I was so pleased and I was I, I took a moment to reflect on it and I thought Do you know what that's a huge achievement for her and I think our children are a very good leveler of understanding, you know, what, what success looks like and, and the things that we should feel happy about and the things that we should celebrate. And more than her achievement with the counting, what I really found gave me so much joy was the fact that she was so excited to come home with her certificate and show me her certificate. And when we first got that diagnosis for her looking back, I think one of my first questions for the doctor was, will she will she go to a normal school? And I look back on that and I was like, why was that so important to me? It doesn't matter. She's at a SEN school, um, a, a wonderful school. You know, she's doing so well. She loves her school. And um, I, I think what I was really worried about was her being locked out of normal childhood experiences, like being in a class, having friends, getting a certificate in assembly for her achievement. That's what I meant by that, really, I think, looking back. And to have her come home and be excited about her certificate, I, I was just like, like, this is pure joy. And I think this is something, reflecting back on doing these podcasts, that I think maybe I've taken as a given. But I am so proud of her. You know, I love her so fiercely. And from those moments of initial doubt and guilt and shock, and and anger everything we've talked about you know you, you come around 180 and I could not be prouder to be her mum you know I think thank god we've got yeah. her thank god she's ours thank god she didn't go to someone else you know because nobody loves the bones of her like I do you know nobody knows her like I do and her you know and her dad and her siblings and the wider family my mum is very involved in her care you know we've got so many people around us that just adore her she's such a unique little person and I just think thank god she's ours because what would we do without her and I, that is difficult to think that maybe sometimes people look at us and think well if you didn't have her you know, when you just had the other two things would be easier or things would be better I don't know I'm projecting now it is a difficult thought that other people might look at her and think that she is less than because she's not. She is so valid. She's a valid person in her own right. She's perfect. You know, I'm so lucky to have her. I completely agree with, with Harry and the same. But there's a beautiful passage that I quoted in my book from a Jodie Picoult book called Handle With Care. And I'm paraphrasing now because I can't remember the exact words, but it's something like other people look at me and think what a poor mother she is raising a child like that. But I'm 
grateful every day because a child without your condition would be a child that wasn't you. And I read that at Harry's bedside one night and it it shifted, it physically shifted something inside me. And I thought if I wished away all of these things, all of these conditions and, you know, for his benefit as much as anything else, it would be a different child. And and that isn't the child I want. I want this child. I want this little warrior and this boy that makes me laugh and and fills my heart. And and his his face is almost very concave on one side. And when we snuggle, my head sort of fits in it. And I'm like, we're like a jigsaw that was always meant to just fit together. And and so, yeah, I, I completely agree with that, that I think once we've processed it all, we're able then to love the life we've got. And I, I became aware of some research recently that said that the dreams that we have when we're pregnant, the plans that we make and the hopes that we have and the visions that we create for these little people that we are cooking in our uteruses for nine months or seven in my case, they serve an, a, a real evolutionary and biologically purpose in that when we are having sleepless nights and, and our children are teething, holding on to that dream helps us to get through it. It helps us to stay attached to the baby because we know this period is a short time and I've got that dream to look forward to. So when mums like us have babies like ours, our wiring is all over the place because instantly those that dream's taken away from us. And I love that because... Actually, maybe it's not grief. Maybe it's just rewiring. Maybe it's, or maybe it's both, but maybe it's just us recalibrating a new reality, a new dream, new hopes. And that takes time and it takes us getting to know our children and getting to know ourselves on a completely different level. But I think once we've done that, there's no going back. You know, I know everybody loves their kids, but I think special needs kids are loved that extra bit fiercely. You know, the, the mama bear in us. Um, is super protective over our, our disabled children. And yeah, I, I absolutely adore, absolutely adore the bones of both of my boys. It's not a life I would have ever chosen. If somebody had been able to wave a magic wand in the two hours after I'd been the boys had been born and said, you know, would you like to go back in time and, and this be a different reality? I'd have said, absolutely, yes. Yes, I don't want this life. And now I, I would say now, let, let's go. Let's let's keep going. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and of course, Harry and Oliver are now both at college. Um, they're young adults, not children anymore. How do you feel when you think about the future for all of you? Yeah, I'm excited for both of them. Um, Oliver is applying for apprenticeships and going into the workplace. Harry is at college on a reduced. So from September, he'll go down to three days at college. And then the other two days have been a placement in the in the community in almost like a community centre where they do loads of activities and things like that with them. Um, that's been challenging. I have to say the, the jump from child to adult services has been an eye opener and not without its challenges. But I am excited um, to see what will happen for the both of the boys next. And I'm less worried about what will happen when I die a little bit, which I know is a huge one for us all. But I see in some ways I keep Harry close to me. You know, I I, I probably smother him and I try and hold him safe. But what I do is I hold him back. I don't mean to, but 
as he's got older, he's shown me in his own way. Do you know what? I want time on my own. I want to be able to go and sit in my bedroom on my own. And and I can see that he's outgrowing me. And I'm glad and I'm really pleased that he wants time on his own because one day he'll have more than he you know, ever expected when I'm not around anymore. So I feel less fearful, I think, than I've ever felt and a little bit calmer, I think, but certainly excited to see what the future holds for both of them. That's wonderful. Finally, Charlie, I'm going to ask you to finish the sentence. The biggest lesson raising a Sen child has taught me is... Don't believe everything you think. I think we are masters at beating ourselves up and telling ourselves that we're not good enough, that we can't do it, that our children will never be this, that or the other. And both our children and ourselves can defy our own expectations. So I think, yeah, be kind to ourselves and don't always believe our brains. They can be cruel to, to us sometimes. Thank you, Charlie. That's all for this episode. Special thank you to my guest, Charlie Beswick. You are now officially part of the Send Mums Career Club. Yay! <laughs> if you want to be part of the club too, join us on social media and share your story. You can find us at Send Mums Career on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn or use the hashtag SendMumsCareer. We're new here in the podcast space and I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review and of course come back next time.